You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Lit Review Podcast, a literary podcast for the movement. How are you doing today, Paige? I'm pretty great. Um, I'm still feeling super happy and bubbly after last night. I know I didn't actually get to check in a lot with you, but we were both at Jamila Wood's show and it was so cute. That show was incredible. I Her stage presence is just so glorious and I didn't expect all the like fabulous outfit changes throughout the night. Like, oh my God, that was incredible and it was so beautiful. Like for those that are listening, we were at the Jamila Woods show uh, last night at the Harold Washington Cultural Center. It was super beautiful. Um, there were um, readings from Patricia Frazier and Tasha and um, Asada's Accarelli came through and did the It Is Our Duty to Fight chant. It was just such a beautiful, night um i had a blast i'm so happy that i was there same it was so sweet and the ride back to drop everyone off was adorable everyone was like that was so much fun i can't wait to do it again and then passed out (laughs) they were all asleep (laughs) in the 10 minute drive to get back yeah uh the youngest there was seven yeah um yeah so i'm really stoked though to talk uh with a very special guest and about a very exciting book or a very fitting book uh today we're going to be talking to a person deeply dedicated to our movements for abolition and liberation in chicago and we've actually all three of us have organized together through we charge genocide through fighting for reparations here in chicago we've shut down a police conference together and so many other things and so kelly hayes is on the show today and we're going to be talking about the book fascism today what it is and how to end it by shane Burley. And yeah, how are you doing today, Kelly? You know, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm tired, but so happy to be here with you all. Um, so I'm a direct action trainer and a grassroots organizer. And um, direct action training just means that, you know, I go around to folks who are trying to do grassroots work, who have visions of carrying out protests, and help them kind of collect the tools that they need. And practice or whatever it takes to help people get ready to fight the battles they need to fight in their communities. And so that's a big piece of what I do. Um, my group also does uh, defense committee work. Uh, as uh, you said, we're abolitionists, and we also are very big on self-defense. So we're very much about um, acting in defense of people who are being persecuted for defending their lives against you know, this oppressive system. Um, I'm also a journalist. And so I, uh, I cover movements, and, you know, fascism is a movement, and so it's, uh, you know, it's part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so excited that you're on the show. Actually, I've been posting on, like, Instagram stories and on Twitter with, like, polls of, like, who should we have on season two? And li- literally everywhere. Oh, and Facebook, too. Literally everywhere. It's like, Kelly Hayes. Have Kelly Hayes on the show. Where's <laughs> Kelly Hayes? Why hasn't Kelly Hayes been on the show? And I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to get it. It's going to happen. <laughs> So I'm so glad you're here today. So thank you for being with us. Um, Again, we're talking about the book Fascism Today, what it is and how to end it by Shane Burley. It's um, 
published by AK Press. Um, I just picked up the book in front of me right now, and I, the sentence that stuck out to me on the back, that's a, it says, yes, black-masked Antifa militants are part of the struggle, but Burley focuses his attention on the popular, broad-based anti-fascist practices that have historically proven effective against the alt-right, neo-Nazi skinheads, the KKK, and armed militia groups. So can you tell us what led you to like pick up this book and read it? I have, you know, as someone who does the kind of work I do, I have, you know, always thought that fascism is something we really need to understand. And I also came to better educating myself about it because I'm one of those people who used to misuse the word chronically. Because in, you know, sort of our pop cultural political knowledge, we tend to just sort of say fascism when we mean authoritarian or we mean super oppressive. You know, protesters are getting hauled away and people are like, this is fascism. But not necessarily, and honestly, probably not. Um, because for one thing, that's just people not wanting to see this system as inherently oppressive, so wanting to make it something else, uh, trying to other that oppression out. But fascism um, you know, has a very specific set of circumstances, so I've always wanted to have an understanding of that in the work that I do. But to be real, um, fear. After Trump was elected, um, a friend of mine, an organizer, who lives in New York, a jurisdiction really brilliant black grassroots strategist, um, we started having very real conversations about like, okay, what happens to us now? At what point do we take what action in the interest of surviving? And one of those questions was, at what point does it time to leave? Like, is it time to just face whatever horrible thing is going to happen to us or to run? And, you know, there's no formula for that. But we were really working on it. <laughs> and we really wanted to develop kind of a vision of what are these different stages, what are these different things that when they happen, we know we are that much closer to that decision time of what it means for freedom fighters who've been down in it, you know, who've been pissing off the power structure for years to say, I'm out. And we know that under fascist regimes historically, obviously, like they come for teachers, you know, they come for philosophers, they come for activists. So what does it mean to be up against this? And that inspired me to, to really kind of go down a rabbit hole of research and trying to understand more. And Shane Burley um, has written for Truth Out, which is my day job uh, where I do most of my writing and you know, does excellent work. And this book came up multiple times when I started talking about like, I need to get back to doing a deep dive into fascism. And it was just on you know, the lips of numerous people I respect. Oh, then you have to read Shane Burley's book. And as soon as I picked it up, I, I understood why. I'm glad that the first chapter is defining fascism, because it seems like that's something that takes a minute to then explain. So maybe we'll start there, but you can kind of go into what does this book cover and, and what, what does it explain? So the, um, the first uh, section, and I think this is super important because it helped me so much, is a glossary, a glossary of terms. And it's a little overwhelming at first because I mean, to be real, like just most of us don't know about the like expansive number of groups that have different fascist ideologies that were already operating in the United States. We don't know their backstories. And we have this tendency, I think, to flatten identities of those we oppose as though we're, we're accomplishing something strategic by doing that. Um, like a lot of folks were like, don't don't call them alt-right, they're trying to rebrand, like just call them white supremacists. I'm like, okay, it's true that they're trying to rebrand and that needs to be challenged. Like, but we also have to say the words alt-right. Like, we really have to do that because it's not like all fascists are the same 
And there is a spectrum of what these different groups are doing in terms of damage and the role that they're playing in the evolving situation. So I think it's really important for us to, to look at terminology and be willing to learn like, more specific information about what does the enemy look like? What are these different groups about? What kind of damage they have they been doing when we weren't looking and we were generalizing them as all being the same? Because all the same is like, that's an ideological and moral judgment, not a strategic one. And I think that we need to be very strategic in how we're operating in opposition to these people right now. And that means understanding that like saying that they're all evil, you know, or bad or whatever, we can characterize them with the same adjectives if we want <laughs> in terms of like, you know, right and wrong but functionally they're very different. And so I appreciate that jumping off point and also it not being at the end <laughs> because I think that it's, uh, it really says something that Shane comes out front with like, yeah, these are a lot of words. Here's something to help you walk through this. <laughs> and so I think it's a super user-friendly book in that way as, as much as it can be um, with some of the things that it plunges into. Okay, so can you explain to me what is the alt-right? When I hear alt-right, I think of like these massive you know, institutional movements, but, and, and oftentimes we don't even think of them as grassroots movements. And, you know, you always, I think a lot of us tend to associate grassroots with good and like fighting for like liberation and racial justice and economic justice, but grassroots can also be, you know, for the evil and the bad. <laughs> so yeah, can you just explain what is the alt-right? So Shane gives a um, definition of the alt-right in the uh, glossary, which I think is incredibly helpful because, yeah, I didn't have the right words to describe this either. I think we can all name examples of people that were like, they're part of the alt-right, but it would be difficult just off the top of your head to tell people how, you know, how is Richard Spencer, like, different? What dis make distinguishes him other than, like, you know, a kind of a more stylish veneer from some of these other, like, white supremacists out there? So... Uh, the definition that's given in the book is short for alternative right, a big tent term that links together white nationalists with misogynist movements, racial pagans, race realists, traditionalists, and other currents into contemporary internet-focused national movement. This is typified by ideas like ethnic nationalism and conflict, traditional societies and social roles, human inequality, essential identities, and an aggressive troll culture of internet dialogue. Now, that's a lot to take in, but um, those terms, you know, fortunately, we have a glossary for things like racial pagans and race realists, because I didn't know what the heck that meant when I started reading this. <laughs> um, but understanding that it's a confluence, right? It's not simply this particular characterization that we have of, like, the Richard Spencer type that everyone's been seeing get punched in the face. Like, the, the threat and the reason the threat is so great right now is the way in which these ideas are converging, the ways in which these people who don't normally work together um, have found a common ground. And we have specifically seen, as Shane notes here, we've seen this evolve out of internet culture in a way that is really new, right? Just, just as, like, you know, historically for us as leftist organizers, the advent of, the, you know, social media was huge. Like, you know, you know, it gave us the ability to have a reach we never had before. It gave us an ability to connect with people in their struggles in a way we hadn't before. And, you know, and as I note to people in direct action trainings, it gave us a second bite at the apple with the media. Because back when I first started doing this work, the people who didn't see your action didn't see your action. Like, if the media didn't cover you, then that was that. 
But, you know, I got involved with Standing Rock pretty early on when no one was covering it yet outside of, you know, maybe a couple of independent journalists. But through social media, you know, a pressure campaign was really created against the fact that that media sort of blackout existed. And so the media can be forced either by pursuing, you know, their own interests, like, okay, now this is a story, or public pressure to cover a thing. So it's this confluence of different folks and some of the... Uh, some of the commonalities they have, some of the common ground they've found has come through like meme culture. Like we've all seen these memes that we associate with the alt-right, that we associate with racism and you know, sort of the growth of that culture. But bringing together misogyny and sort of general white male discontent mm -hmm. like is a lot of what created this mess. Um, you know, we have the message boards, we have 4chan, we have all of these places that, like, bored white men got to talk about, like, you know, no one will sleep with them, and they're so miserable, and they have all these problems. And so they created their own little culture of victimhood, and that created, you know, a prime recruiting ground. Like, early on, the alt-right apologized very, you know, like, they were very, like, openly apologetic about the fact that they didn't have more women. And they were like, yeah, I know, we're, we're working on that, though, you know. <laughs> it was like a thing that was going to happen as their movement grew. And they abandoned that, um, you know, quite tactically, you know, smart move on their part. Because they realized that the misogynists were, you know, a, a really fertile ground for them. And these people don't want to work with women. They hate women. They hate women for not sleeping with them. They hate women for growing in social power that they want to have for themselves. And so honing in on that has been a big part of the growth of what we call the alt-right. And, you know, having the fact that they feel sorry for themselves in these particular ways um, fed justifications. Like, you are a victim. And then, like, their rage is validated. Like, there's this whole process of walking, you know, people in the same way that liberals um, can be sort of the most likely recruits of more leftist, you know, organizers, like, these disenchanted, miserable white guys were just waiting to be picked off and radicalized for this. And the Richard Spencers of the world were happy to swoop in and do that work. So what is fascism, and how do we end it? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it has something to do with misogyny, which is very interesting to me. The first thing I, I want to emphasize is it's not easy to, to rattle off a definition for fascism, and I think that's frustrating for people, right? Because we want it to just mean something that we can explain and understand and point to and be like, that's what it looks like when this thing happens. But, you know, it's, there is no generic definition that, you know, that's the one we want it to have. Um, academics will sometimes offer checklists for conditions that constitute fascism, those conditions are usually so specific that they always seem to disqualify the present. You know, they're grounded in historical events in a way that can't be related. Like, they're trying to fix a thing in time, mm. not allowing for it to have dynamic expression in the present. Mm. And so, uh, like, my favorite definition of fascism comes from uh, Robert O. Paxton. It's in the book uh, Anatomy of Fascism, which is quoted in this book. Um, but it's a very wordy definition. It's like a full paragraph. So to try to break it down into to what it really means, um, fascism involves first an obsession with victimhood. People have a collective sense that they are being you know, treated unfairly, usually by a marginalized group. And this is really important because the creation of a myth that the people with the most power or a lot of power are actually the most oppressed 
it's sort of a conspiratorial, you know, idea. It, it shifts everything on its head. And it's a validation for the frustration of people who are powerful, you know, in theory. Like, you know, maybe poor white folks who feel empowered by identity. And so they have that identity as currency going for them, but are, of course, really being held back by white supremacy in various ways because white supremacy reinforces capitalism, which reinforces their oppression. But we have all these people who really need to believe that things are not going their damn way because everything is stacked against them and people are out to get them. And so fascism affords them that. It tells them, like, you are right. You are the world's biggest victims. You're the ones who are getting the shaft in all this. You're the ones who are entitled to better than this. And, you know, we're here to fight for you. And this is why um, conspiracy theories uh, in the places where those are discussed are a really fertile recruiting ground for fascists. And I didn't understand that before I read this book at all. It's one of the things I really learned here was that conspiracy theories are so useful to the development of racist ideas in people, to the cultivation, rather, of racist ideas. They're so useful to convincing people of that, you know, that first point, that, like, obsession with victimhood. It's like, oh, I seem like I have all this going for me. They say I have all this going for me. But presenting this conspiratorial viewpoint, right, of how Jewish folks or other people, affirmative action, all these things have aligned, and really they're super persecuted now. And conspiracy theories undermine people's basic assumptions. They turn ideas on their head. They get people to kind of embrace uh, radical narratives, you know, that don't make sense, aren't believable to most people. And by the time you have folks getting their head around, you know, something really outlandish, something that really turns on its head, like their understanding of everything, like that person is like ripe for radicalization. And it's really important to note that like this is true for us too in some ways, right? Like when people are starting to realize that, you know, this is unfair, I'm being victimized, this is unjust. And then as organizers, we connect with people about the issues that matter to them. And we start arming with them tools. And we're saying, hey, here are some tools. And here's how you can actually organize that against that oppression. You're not wrong. <laughs> Society may tell you you're wrong, but these are real things that are being aimed at you. It's a fictionalization mm -hmm. process of that. And so mythology is super important to fascism. It has no actual historical justification, right, to ever happen. So people have to create a mythology that justifies everything that is happening. A mythological past that people are trying to return to that was more just and better and made more sense. And, and the alt, uh, well, the alt, I was going to say the alt left. And we, <laughs> and we do that too, right, as, like, as a movement, right? It, that makes me think about Emory Douglas and how Emory Douglas created this mythology of, of power for black people, right? Through the artwork that he made, you know, showing, um, I mean, frankly, showing people murdering police officers, right? And showing police as pigs. And like that was creating that mythology to then invoke power, right? So would you say it's sort of similar to that? Or, or is it like, what is different about it? A retelling of history that is different than the common history is very common to the work that we do. Um, because the common history is typically a lie and it erases, you know, lots of important things and it portrays the, you know, the authority structure as being less guilty. So we're doing actual historical correction when we reach out to people, whereas for these folks, there's a creation of a mythology 
that reinforces their own greatness, that establishes the idea that there was actually a time that embodied the things they want about right now and didn't have any of the flaws of right now and didn't have any of the things they don't like about present society. And so it really conjures up this, this goal, this non-existent you know, sort of golden state of being for them that they're trying to get back to. So the creation of that fictitious notion is really important. Um, and also in terms of the projection moving forward, that is, I think, much more closely parallel. Because, I mean, you know, when we talk about, like, the battle of narratives in direct action trainings, we talk about foreshadowing, right? Because if I'm telling you we need to fight these clinic closures, and that's my campaign, and I'm working on it, it's definitely part of that for me to explain what will happen if we lose. Mm -hmm. The devastating consequences of losing. And so, you know, structuring that explanation and argument in opposition to what we know the other side is going to say is super important. For them they're creating a vision of the future that is, for one thing, false, right? Because we know that these people aren't actually going to be empowered by this in the end. A lot of these people are going to themselves be ground under and at the very least experiencing a different kind of oppression than the one that is, ones that are currently out there. So there's also this notion of cults of unity and energy and personality. And the best example that I can give for that to give people a sense of what that looks like is a Trump rally. It's this cult of unification. Everyone's been brought together around this identity, this thing that they can all celebrate and like essentialize is giving them all an inherent value. So they all have this unity that maybe they didn't have before. Even if they're like wildly different in their white supremacist ideas and their goals, they have a cult of unity now and common purpose that's all centered on identity. Um, energy, like, right? There are no political movements without momentum. No one seizes power without energy. Um, and personality, right? And that's where we see Trump as you know, the example of this moment. There's a cult of personality. People genuinely don't care what he does. People don't care how messed up. Um, even in terms of people often comment, and it's absolutely true, that you can't appeal to the humanity of a lot of his followers because they enjoy these really violent things. They celebrate these really violent actions. But even when he diverges from what they really want, um, as he has with his interventionist acts of war, these nationalists will make excuses. They will find ways to still celebrate him because the cult of personality is the bottom line with him and not actually if he's true to his word about anything. So it's not like the conservatives in you know, government ever got around to necessarily liking Donald Trump or approving of his behavior. Much of what he does, they're, they're not into. It, it's not consistent with you know, their front-facing stuff that they'd like to do. But they are in coalition. They are in effective coalition. Mm -hmm. They are getting the tax cuts. They're getting the things that they want, and they've been willing to sell their soul to this outward, open white nationalism that before they would have treated as, you know, somewhat untouchable. It's like, you know, dog whistles were necessary. Like, they needed to code their racism. And the need for that has eroded. And they've embraced that, even though it's not their style. Um, I, I always cite as an example, in 2008, when John McCain got the Republican nomination, I remember the Republican convention where he made this speech and he said that this is the party of Lincoln and if you do not believe that people were created equal, then there's the door. 
And there were wild applause. People cheered and were clapping and were so happy, not because they believed in any of that, but because it was important to the front-facing lie of what the Republican Party is. And they do not feel the need to maintain that facade anymore. So this uneasy but effective collaboration that um, allows the white nationalists to have mainstreamed themselves in this way that, you know, they didn't, they didn't used to have that. And it's like, we are trying to push our radical ideas into the mainstream, right? Um, Medicare for all, right, was at one point unthinkably socialist and is now something that a lot of Democrats are getting behind. It's the work of leftists to push ideas that are fringe into the mainstream, and they're doing the same, and they've been winning like mad on that front recently. Then we have the abandonment of liberties and, you know, social norms that are associated with human rights, civil rights. These things erode. And we saw that almost immediately when Trump was elected. Um, it's not that racist things weren't already happening. And this is a difficulty we have when discussing this because people will quite rightly say, like, people were already outwardly racist. Racist things were already happening. Obama deported so many people. Like, all of these things are true and valid. And yet, it would be wrong to pretend that nothing changed when the Trump administration took hold. And there really is a difference, even if it doesn't feel like there is, between racism that is implicit and racism that is explicit. Like racism and white nationalism that is performed in the open, either with the approval of society or the indifference of a society. Like, you know, shake your head, but don't do anything about it. So that transition to where we have children in schools chanting, build the wall, who would not have been doing that before, like, this is the erosion of norms. This is these things becoming more acceptable. And when we start to hear about things, terrible things happening, people getting beaten, people getting shot up, you know, in their places of worship, and people being massacred, like, there is a process of normalization that happens to us no matter how much we try to fight it. it it's a biological thing, right? I need to sleep at night. So no matter how upset I get over the course of the day, no matter what horror I see, my body and mind are trying to find a way to bring me back to neutral so I can have normal human moments. I can eat, I can sleep, I can love my partner, I can watch TV. And as we do this, as our bodies and minds do this, we are being, you know, normalization is being inflicted upon us. And so it's not just them that normalize the thing. We do too as a consequence of the violence being inflicted. Stress does so much to the body, and I'm sure y'all know this as organizers. <laughs> like, people really underestimate the impact of stress on the body. There are different organs in our body, systems that are working at like 300% when we are actively afraid, when we are actively confronted with a threat, and you can't sustain that way. So the body finds a way to tolerate. The society really mirrors that experience. Even people that aren't in favor of that kind of horrible shit the norm erodes, the abandonment of liberties just kind of takes hold. And that brings us to cleansing and expansion, which um, the alt-right uses phrases like, um, like peaceful ethnic cleansing. What? Yeah, yeah, no, they, they talk about non-violent wow. ethnic cleansing. Like, it's a thing. Non-violent <laughs> ethnic cleansing. Absolutely. Okay. They talk about this. What? But what they're getting at and what these people who've come to embrace these, you know, sort of identity-based ideas about themselves, it's that this needs to be for us. 
all of that we need to take and reclaim all of this for us. And once you create that mentality, like cleansing is just like, you know, a natural consequence. Mm. Unless you plan to use and abuse these people in some way, which obviously the currents of wanting that are there too. Um, and expansion. People tend to think about that in terms of land, but it's really, that can be it. It can be the expansion of power, the expansion of dominance, the expansion of like, you know, the reach of the police state. But we are, what we see is, is a cleansing that is enforced with violence and authority and an expansion of the power that's behind it all. So yeah, that's a very long explanation, but that is the, the best like, sort of explanation of fascism that I can try to offer you off mm -hmm. the cuff. And, mm -hmm. and again, thank you, Robert O'Paxton. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the author's trajectory in the book or how does Shane Burley sort of lay out the book in talking about fascism? Shane offers a, a one sentence sort of summary but it's really just kind of an introduction to sort of key elements of fascism. It's um, inequality through mythological and essentialized identity and that might make a little sense since I, I just said a bunch of things mm -hmm. but um, he does refer to Paxton's definition which is like a really important one but he gets into, uh, goes real deep on the dynamic nature of fascism and how we identify various elements that exist. And this is how we can kind of track what's happening and understand, um, you know, it doesn't always happen in the same order, but there's a progression and we can see it and we can see these different things taking hold. Um, part one of the book outlines what fascism is, uh, what it's grounded in, how it's rebranded. Part two looks at resistance efforts and what those have looked like historically what some of them look like now, and what we're going to need you know, in order to succeed. Um, so some of the key elements of fascism that are touched upon are inequality. Right? So that's one of the major tenets of, of fascism, and it's really clearly expressed in what we're seeing today in that equality is seen as bad. Multiculturalism is bad. Um, a universalized experience of anything is bad. Inequality is natural in the fascist view. It's natural and necessary, and it's an, it's an honest thing. Mm -hmm. Like, all men are not created equal. Let's not pretend that they are, is the mentality. And the idea that getting rid of stratification, getting rid of hierarchy, actually demoralizes and destroys society. So inequality and inequality being enforced along lines of identity and you know, leadership, who has the most power, within the analysis of a misogynistic, you know, violent white nationalist movement. Like, it's a creation of tears that, of course, put marginalized people at the bottom and makes them more dehumanized and more disposable. Um, fascism is also populist, which is a really important aspect of things. Um, it's not like an authoritarian regime just overthrows things really powerfully and people have no choice. There are a lot of people getting behind these ideas uh, a lot of people feeling celebrated by these ideas, feeling like these serve their interests in a really powerful and necessary way. On the left, we tend to use populism as an inherently positive word sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like serving the interests of the people. Yeah. And so looked at from our perspective, it's like, that is really good. <laughs> looked at from what they want, sort of mass appeal and appealing to people's sense of, you know, what's good for them is actually very violent. Mm -hmm. And it's grounded in identity which is you know, another key element, as I mentioned before. Identity has to mean something. It has to mean something essential. 
It has to be something that imbues certain qualities and rights upon people. Uh, the alt-right is very big on pseudoscience. You'll run into that a lot, the citation of already debunked scientific theories about how white people are intellectually superior to others, um, you know, more moral than others. But it's really important to understand that this identity piece um, is also based in a mythology. Like when I say mythology, um, you know, a, a false history or whatever, it goes deeper than that. These people need to believe in something that's almost magical. So for this book, just to know, when I think of fascism, I think of, I think of a global scale or like an international scale. Does, is that what, does he touch on that or is it very U.S. centric? Um, no, absolutely. There's, um, there's a lot of global discussion in the book and uh, I think an understanding in Shane's work that we have to view fascism from a global lens because it is, um, it's a paradigm shifting view. It's, it's an idea that is, you know, as much as it's contained to this idea of nationalism, us for us, us first, all of that, there's a religiosity to that that extends elsewhere. And so we are seeing a, a global expansion of fascism, a global rise of fascism. And not only would we be foolish not to see that as, you know, existing in great connection to what we're experiencing, but we'd also be eclipsing a lot of history about what it means to fight fascism. And, you know, I think our failure to grasp that is a big part of why we are not doing a great job of countering this right now. Can we actually hear more about that? What does Shane offer in terms of fighting fascism and how do we end it part of the title? So so there's a lot there. And, you know, that's a you know a whole second half of a book. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, one of the things is that, like, we need to understand that organizing isn't restricted to the ways in which we think of it, the ways in which it's obvious. When you have a fringe idea and you're publicly speaking to it in front of an audience, you're organizing. And I, I think we understand that as organizers, as people who have ideas that folks consider more fringe, anytime we're bringing that into spaces, anytime we're trying to relate to people about those ideas, we are organizing. We are trying to push those values further towards the norm so that more and more people get behind them. And I think we need to understand fascism in those same terms. And Shane really hammers home that anytime these people are speaking publicly, anytime these people are successfully you know, communicating their message, they're organizing. And fascists simply cannot be allowed to organize. And so that means a lot of things, right? So anti-fascism is people tend to associate it with like Antifa, like actually shutting down these events actually preventing, you know, deep platforming as it's come to be known. But deep platforming existed way before we had that terminology for it. Um, you know, way back in the 20s when anti-fascists and like, you know, in the UK are trying to stop what's happening with the proliferation of it as a popular idea amongst workers. Like they had tactics that involved showing up in mass, disrupting what was happening, charging in and flipping over the podium, doing things they knew that would instigate the police to just call a stop to everything that was happening. It was just all about this notion that, you know, fascists don't get to say anything. They don't get to do anything. They don't get to move their ideas forward and build culture because there's an underappreciation of metapolitics, right? And I think as grassroots organizers, we understand the importance of culture building which is, is what I mean, by the way. Metapolitics is uh, 
sort of these are the things that drive social change when action happens, the things that turn into policy or resistance to policy or very obvious waves of politics. Music, you know, is metapolitics if it has a political bend to it. So stomping these things out in whatever way that that's done, whether it's really direct deplatforming, like, you know, Antifa showing up and not allowing people to actually hold their event, um, really anything we can do to, a, to create obstacles or to attach a cost. There has to be a cost for being a fascist, and right now there isn't. These people have already bought a mythology where I'm not human. Um, Shane talks about it in the book, something called pre-Adamic. Um, you know, people really believe, some of these white, you know, supremacists really believe that people like us who, you know, aren't of, you know, white ancestry or wholly white ancestry um, come from beings, creatures that existed before Adam and Eve in the garden. Like, you know, we come from beasts and they come from the thing that was the perfected God's image kind of piece. So you can't reason with that. And so understanding that you cannot have a moral disagreement with that and come to any good, that debate is worthless, I think it gets clearer. Like, it's about, as, you know, as Miriam Kava says, it's about power, not affect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to get bolder. We need to understand that a mass movement against fascism, it can take many shapes, right? It can involve boycotts. It can involve, you know, sort of banner drops and these things we identify with more with our ongoing work. But we have to see everything that is lining up against that is being connected. And, you know, maybe, maybe somebody wouldn't put on a mask and go break something, but they have to come to the conclusion and the understanding that those people are on their side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as anti-racist action said in the late 90s, an emission statement that's absolutely incredible and that Shane talks about in the book, um, they established this idea that it is okay that we are coming from different places and different ideologies. And it is also okay for us to challenge one another on these ideas. But once one of us is attacked in any way, we all line up against that. Mm -hmm. No matter how much I disagree with that person over there, you hurt them, we're all coming for you. That's an old idea, but not one the left is good at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the solutions really do lie there in many ways. Okay. Okay, so I have like five questions. <laughs> so, okay. The first are very short. So, is the alt right fascist? Yes. And it in our is fascism the alt right? Hmm. Interesting. Um, <laughs> the alt right is definitely fascist. Okay. It's it's fascistic in its ideas. Okay. And this is another thing we need to like really think about is that we are talking about fascism right now as a movement, uh -huh. as a successful movement in many ways yeah. and something that is taking power structurally the alt-right is definitely fascist but it comes from places you know it's the convergence of things that weren't necessarily in and of themselves reflective of all these things we're talking about shane explains this really well in this little paragraph in the book that i'd like to read to talk about how some of these things converged over the course of the evolution of sort of internet culture it begins Trolling was then an act of performance art, a sort of culture jamming, which went after figures of establishment power. Reactionaries filled this cultural vacuum, and anonymity and self-righteous anger was fueled by the growing inability to discern facts in the lightning-fast message board culture. The ability of people in modern society to construct their entire social lives online 
led to the development of a strange kind of person, the alienated white male who felt free to descend into blame. The right then captured this apolitical rebellion, first by anti-feminist movements and then by the explicit racialism of the alt-white. So, you know, there's, there's so many types of rage and self-victimization and, you know, different ideas that, that converge there that we wouldn't think of this being inherently fascist, but they all feed into a fascist concept really well. I'm wondering where we're at now. I remember years ago, my brother, who's way more into internet culture than I am, talking about things like 4chan. I've known of the alt-right for a little bit now, but those are spaces that seem to be growing in their interactions with more of a mainstream society, right? So how is that happening? Where are we at? That's a really important question, and it's really central to the idea of interruption, like these crossover points are necessary because again their views are initially marginal in the society so where are these conduit points right and a great example is students for trump um students coming together on college campuses to get behind donald trump have varying you know motivations some of them are just like college republicans who want to be a little edgier and you know a little more open about their racism and enjoy the company of people who like are explicitly racist and they, they cultivate these environments and they radicalize these people that were already leaning towards a politic that is inherently racist. How that gets interrupted, honestly, comes from, you know, anti-fascist tactics like doxing. I mean, it's a really important one and it's one that's been used for a long time, um, long before it existed in that internet-y way that we think about it. Um, researching people, getting their lives on paper, and releasing that information. Um, it's been successfully done in a number of places to derail completely the leadership and the efficacy of fascist groups. Um, if you think about the example of Students for Trump for a moment, what if these college Republicans are really excited about being in this space and getting to be like all racist and stuff, and then they see the white nationalists alienated from their families? They see them lose their jobs. They see them become maybe expelled from school for their behaviors. The more miserable you make those people, the more of a cost you attach, the more these other folk who are more in the mainstream are going to be, maybe I'll just go back to being a closet racist. <laughs> maybe I'll just go be a Republican. <laughs> and as much as that sucks and we need to destroy the Republican Party, like that's the enemy I'd rather fight right now. So, you know, Finding those points of normalcy and making the people who want to bridge with white nationalism, who are flirting with all of this, see it as toxic, mm -hmm. is incredibly damaging to them. And so, you know, interrupting those points of mainstreaming is, is hugely important. And that's making me think of the phenomenon of, of all happening on Twitter of just people, individual moments that you know happen a thousand times more than what you can find on Twitter. But there's these this long record of people posting videos of racists doing really, really racist things and then Twitter does its thing and you find out their name and where they work and where they live and you call them out. Yeah. And that that matters because, yes, it's not, we're not going to disrupt, right? Like it's, it's, it's one instance of thousands that are happening at any given moment, but they still matter because they're watching, right? And they're seeing the, that we're taking them down, that we, we, can, do, we can reverse uh, the internet culture back on them, right? I think that's really interesting to hear. Absolutely. And the case of Charlottesville is an excellent example. Those folks felt so empowered. They got to wreak havoc. And then the consequences started piling up. 
people started to realize that to get that level of attention, to have that kind of moment, you're putting everything you have at stake and you know people lost everything over that. And so people need to be able to bear witness to that sort of thing. There's a great example in the book of, um, you know, anti-fascism has way more research elements to it than people realize. In fact, that's the sole focus of some anti-fascist groups. Um, there was one case where a group was building power in a community and the anti-fascists who were researching them um, documented all of their personal information, figured out who their families are, where they worked, all of that, and they did a slow rollout of that information. So one week, one person gets outed to their family, to their job. Their life plunges into despair. The next week, it's somebody else. And after that, somebody else, creating that climate of fear. You know, the same thing that motivated me to like, I need to read this, I need to know this, I need to know what's coming. It's like, you grip, you give people that fear. And self-interest motivates folks. Nobody wants to be those people whose family won't talk to them anymore, who is unemployable. And so that, that's really crucial. So we're reaching the end of our episode, and I just want to, again, thank you so much for being on our show and talking about all of this. I think this episode is definitely mostly you talking because we're just so, like, in <laughs> ca captured by everything you're saying and, like, taking notes. And so I'm super appreciative to have this conversation. Um, so one of my last questions is, um, so if an organizer picks up this book, what are just some things that you'd want them to know from this book? Um, and then also, what is, like, a main takeaway for you personally? When we talk about um, what to take away, um, I do want to qualify that, like, you know, there are different people who have all kinds of expertise, and I love this book, but I, as an organizer personally, wouldn't look to it for, you know, what is intersectionality? It's a word that comes up in the book, and I don't necessarily um, share Shane's sort of definition of it. When we talk about things like identity politics, I wouldn't necessarily discuss it in the same way, but. I think also that's a good kind of note on what we need to be doing right now and something that I think the book drives home really well. Um, we need to be in discussion with each other about things like that, and the book really does bring to the table things that most of us don't know about fascism. And there's a desperate need for us to understand these things better right now. While people still have some capacity for shock, there has to be a cost, something socially, economically, or otherwise. People need to gain an understanding of history and not be manipulated by fascist appeals to liberal sentiments about free speech, a concept that was never about speech being free from social reprisal. People need to understand that you know, fascism practiced in the open is fascist organizing, whether it's building the metapolitics or something more direct, it is attempting to grow. And if something is allowed to grow, something this destructive, it, it could consume us all. So getting people past the notion that fascism is a difference of opinion, you know, best afforded tolerance, you know. We need to dismantle these liberal ideas that we can just agree to disagree. We have to tear apart this utter fantasy people have about a marketplace of ideas where, you know, the best defense is to be a better debater. History has proven that false. It doesn't work. Where it's allowed to get a foothold, this flourishes. And we are so, we're in so deep right now that we need to understand that. Not everyone has to be Antifa as they you know, imagine it, but they have to understand that those people are not their enemy and that those people are on their side. In a mass movement against fascism, we can challenge one another, but we have to be able to do so while naming common enemies and defending one another against those enemies regardless of disagreement. 
And to me, like, that is one of the core takeaways, and I think one of those that is most desperately needed in our society right now. They're the ultimate dividing line in my position. The ultimate dividing line is, are you, are you tolerant of fascism? Are you an apologist? Are you fascist? Or do you exist in opposition to this? And then we can talk about how. And we can talk about if you don't like the way I do it or the way those folks do it. But if we don't understand that we're all on the same side up against something that would destroy us all, throw everything we all believe in into the fire, then we will lose. If you hadn't heard of Kelly Hayes' work before, please, please, please do yourself a favor and go and read what she's written. I mean, there's, there's a lot there, uh, but highly recommend it. Um, I believe you have a Patreon Yes, yes. Please donate to Kelly's Patreon. We recently launched a Patreon. Absolutely, we need more folks becoming, what's it called? Uh, joining our tier, becoming our... <laughs> I think you become a Patreon. Okay. Yeah. So donate to Kelly. And then, you know, if you love the Lit Review, like we love the Lit Review, help us out. And we're going to close the episode, though, as we always do with you reading a favorite passage from the book. Uh, but again, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate everything that you do and for taking an hour of your time to come and hang out with us. Um, thank you as well. Yeah, Y'all's work regularly inspires me. I'm so grateful we're all in community. Um, Excerpt-wise, um, I think the best closing excerpt from the book, there's so many. When I read this, I, I went to town highlighting to the point of ridiculousness. But uh, to leave folk with these thoughts. Through its capitulation, the creation of institutional left forces that are always moderated and invited into systems of existing power, the left has lost its ability to challenge the status quo and prevent a truly alternative vision to the misery of neoliberalism. The right gains ground when the left cannot prove its purpose. And a culture of left ideas that are clear, effective, and prophetic sets the metapolitical framework that robs the right of its only claim. One facet of changing the culture is to increase the social cost of oppressive behavior to the point that those who promote it see no option but to hide. Trump's ascension has given a pass to more casual forms of bigotry and violence that social standards had previously held tenuously in check. Fascism, both institutional and as an insurgent movement, requires passive support by the populace and approval through the actions rather than words. The ideas of no platform used in anti-fascist organizing must be applied throughout the culture. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes.